Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. He's the University of Connecticut's 16th president, and today he joins us in studio. Thomas Katsuleas is a California native who previously worked at the University of Virginia as its executive vice president and provost. In February, he was unanimously appointed to become UConn's new president by the university's board of trustees, and he takes over from Susan Herbst, the first female president of the university who stepped down after eight years. Now, what will be Katsuleus's priorities moving forward? You can join our conversation today, whether you're a UConn student or faculty member or a Connecticut resident whose tax money helps support this public university. Here's the number to call, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook Live today. Just search Where We Live and add your question below that video stream. And as always, you can tweet us at Where We Live. I want to welcome into our studio Thomas Katsuleas, again, president of UConn. Welcome to, welcome to the show and to Connecticut. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. It's great to be here. It's great to be in the great state of Connecticut. I mentioned a little bit about your background in my intro, but tell us more about, uh, your, I understand you're a trained physicist and electrical engineer. Uh, why did, have you decided to dedicate your life to higher ed? Yeah, I, I, I began as a physicist and um, became an engineer. I, I started, a, probably my father was my biggest influence. I was uh, in fourth grade and wanting to play catch and frisbee outside, and he uh, said, why don't we study some physics? And um, said that he wanted me to be an engineer and thought physics was fundamental. So I didn't really want to do that as a 10-year-old, you can imagine, <laughs> but uh, it kind of stuck. I learned Newton's laws and was fascinated by them, and just that one thing led to another. And um, uh, yeah, I was, I was headed to, after, after my education at UCLA, I was headed to Bell Labs, actually. It was one of the places I'd interviewed. And at the last minute, uh, had an opportunity to do some research at um, UCLA on the topic that I had done my thesis on, uh, do an experiment with a colleague and see if it worked. And so I was drawn in, and I was only planning to stay for a year, but um, that that was my entree to academia. I had a wonderful year. It was working in a team, trying to discover new science, trying to make a new particle accelerator work. <laughs> and we were having a lot of fun. So my original goal was really just to be a faculty member, professor, have a successful group. And uh, I was sort of the accidental tourist when it came to administration. I was uh, working at USC uh, across town from UCLA. And uh, the dean came and asked if I would help with some challenges they were having in the physics department at, at USC, uh, students getting Ds, Fs, and Ws. So I went over there and worked on that, and um, apparently it was helpful. So they came back to me later and said, gee, you know, you were helpful with that. Would you like to do some administration in addition to to the professor work? So I became an associate dean of various flavors. I became dean of student affairs and dean of research and uh, eventually vice provost and a few other things, but always keeping my faculty hat until, um, you know, you reach a, a certain point where you're interested in having a broader impact than just your own work. And, and uh, I took the leap and became uh, dean of the engineering school at, at Duke. And uh, from there, as you mentioned, went to Virginia and then and 
finally arrived at the pinnacle here at, at uh, UConn. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, what about UConn uh, attracted you to this university? Well, I saw you know a, pla- a public flagship university that was on the rise. It, from the outside, you could see that over the last couple of decades, it had been one of the fastest rising public universities in the country. I also had seen from my perspective in Virginia, as we were looking at things like uh, uh, some new programs on writing across the curriculum. We looked for best practices across the United States. And one of the six programs that we ended up identifying was UConn's program in writing across the curriculum. So I knew that there were some excellent things going on. The honors program was outstanding. Uh, and and then uh, as I took a closer look, realizing that there was so, uh, so many advantages of geography, there was a supportive state, a great uh, board, and support from the legislature, although financially strapped, but very supportive. And then this uh, sense of community and school spirit that I encountered from everyone I spoke to. And so all of that put together was the kind of places that I've always wanted to go for my own education and uh, just the kind of place I always liked for pursuing my own career in mm-hmm. higher education. Uh, are you a sports fan? I am. I, I was a swimmer myself in, in college and a, a water polo player briefly and ingloriously at UCLA and uh, continue to enjoy uh, college athletics, I think, uh, both for what it does for the student athletes in terms of teaching them uh, skills around leadership and uh, discipline and growth mindset associated with investing effort and uh, teamwork and those kinds of things, uh, but also building community for the rest of the um, those who are watching and uh, part of what creates that special atmosphere of a broad co- context university that I enjoy so much. I want to talk more about the sports program in just a little bit, but I mentioned sure. that because uh, we know the women's team uh, responsible for the national brand uh, that UConn has become. Yes. Uh, you mentioned um, some strengths uh, that the university has, but you know, you've know you been uh, in Connecticut now uh, for more than a month as, as official uh, mm-hmm. president. Uh, but what do you see as the university's weaknesses? What are your priorities moving forward? Uh, Well, you know, my priorities are uh, threefold. I came in asking the faculty and the community these three formative questions. How could we double research? How could we build on the strengths in undergraduate education to bring life transformative education to every student at full scale? And uh, how could we better align with the uh, economic needs of the state? and the priorities of the governor. And uh, I've had a really resonant response from everyone I've asked uh, these three questions. And and I've told the community that uh, I think these are the right answers that will move, the right questions that would move Connecticut um, into the top tier of public flagship universities. Uh, But the answers have to come from them. And uh, the answers will be unique to UConn and will form the basis of a strategic plan that will be transformative for the university uh, and one that would be distinctive. You wouldn't see it every other university or any other university. You'd recognize it immediately as UConn's. You're hearing from Thomas Katsoulias. He is UConn's new president. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. You can find us on Facebook Live today. Add your question below that video stream or tweet us at where we live. I understand uh, when you were announced as as new uh, president of UConn, uh, you have a goal of doubling research dollars at the university over the next seven to 10 years. How difficult is that going to be? Oh, it's really hard. <laughs> Very few of any uh, universities have, have done anything quite that ambitious on that scale. 
Uh, I've been involved in two two universities that were on that track when I when I left. Uh, I like to say we're, the goal is to double research and scholarship, and I add the word and scholarship because it's not just research dollars. In some fields, dollars are a, a good proxy or indicator of research productivity, and others that they're not so correlated. But we want to do it across the board. It's part of our identity as as a great research university, and it brings additional value to our students. It gives them opportunities. Uh, to study side by side with uh, with top faculty, it brings a, a more distinguished faculty to the university. It solves um, complex societal challenges for society. Uh, so it it is who we are. Uh, you mentioned uh, Governor Lamont uh, and some of the the fiscal issues facing Connecticut. How does uh, Connecticut's unfunded pension liabilities uh, impact uh, University of Connecticut specifically? I mean, we know that uh, dollars have shrunk in the amount of money the General Assembly allocates to the University of Connecticut. But when you talk about doubling research dollars, uh, some of the challenges in your way uh, to yeah. getting there. Yeah, no, the the unfunded pension liability is the big eight hundred pound pound gorilla in the room. There's no question about it. Uh, the scale of it is something like $80 million uh, for, uh, for UConn right now, and it's projected to grow. And uh, it has uh, multiple impacts. Uh, first of all, for, for the goal of doubling research, the, the biggest concern there is that uh, our faculty have to go out and compete uh, on a national playing field for research funding from federal agencies. And uh, th- this can have the, the unfunded liability has two potentially harmful effects. One is that because the proposal from our faculty will cost more than from faculty from another state, it may not be viewed as strongly and it may not win in the competition. That's the least of my concerns. The bigger concern is faculty are quite passionate about their research. And uh, if they can get a certain amount of funding uh, here in Connecticut, but the same amount in another state, and that money goes further in terms of they can hire an additional postdoc or uh, additional research staff to be more successful in their research. The risk is that they'll go somewhere else so they can uh, pursue their passion, and that would be truly catastrophic for the state and uh, uh, and for the university. So that's that's the number one issue. Uh, uh, you know, for the health system, the the ramifications of the uh, unfunded liability is. Uh, it's pretty stark. So if you look at where the the health system would have closed last year relative to budget, but for the unfunded pension liability that was just transferred onto that column of the spreadsheet, they would have closed the budget $20 million to the positive of budget. Uh, the health system's been growing clinical revenues um, by 60% over the last six years, which is really pretty remarkable among the highest, uh, I think, among any, uh, among any institution, any healthcare institution. Uh, so other than that, they would be, they would essentially be soaring. And it's kind of like oil on the wings, to use a metaphor that mm-hmm. I think Andy Aguinobi and the, the governor have been using. Uh, on the campus side, it, it's a different issue. Essentially, we are using resources. And some of those include tuition funds from parents and, and uh, students. Uh, and it's not going for their kids' education. It's really going to pay for a prior liability that has nothing to do with their education. So there's kind of a moral issue there as well. You mentioned uh, UConn Health. Again, this has been the target uh, by uh, state lawmakers uh, uh, to cut costs, uh, 
uh, Hearst Connecticut Media uh, reporting, you know, 500 employees at UConn Health uh, make more than $150,000. Uh, there have been talks about maybe privatizing uh, UConn Health. Uh, you know, tell us uh, more about, you know, is this something that you would support and the challenges of, of, of getting that kind of partnership going forth? Yeah, well, you know, there was legislation passed last year that uh, uh, directs UConn to explore a public-private partnership. Um, but of course, a PPP uh, does not mean necessarily privatizing uh, the UConn Health. I mean, in fact, if you privatized it, it would only be two Ps, I think, left, something like that. But um, uh, we, we are exploring it and we are looking for, for win-wins, uh, some sort of synergy and a partnership that would bring added value to both partners, both to UConn Health and uh, to, to a private um, ho hospital partner. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I'm optimistic. We'll we'll explore that and go forward. Um, you know, as as far as the the costs, we looked at it. Um, uh, the costs of associated with um, uh, salaries, for example, are not not significantly different bet between UConn Health and uh, the private market. So we're pretty much at market there. So I don't think that's where the issue is. Uh, but there are some possible synergies and cost savings, but more than that, some potential revenue generation if you bring in complementarity. Uh, uh, academic health systems are built to handle complex cases. And so you, you, through partnership, if through partnership you can uh, have access to a broader patient pool and drive those high acuity cases uh, to um, the academic center that's built to handle them, uh, it can have better outcomes for patients and uh, it can uh, essentially uh, mi minimize the net operating loss that way. Um, so, so that's um, one of the, the values. The other value is UConn Health is a fantastic brand and um, being associated with an academic uh, medical center uh, where the doctors are making the new discoveries that are curing disease. Uh, is a is a great thing for patients and and so there's some potential to monetize the Yukon Health brand here, and um, it will be a competitive advantage for whomever partners with Yukon Health. You can join our conversation with Thomas Katsuleas, who is the new Yukon president. The number to call, 888-720-9677, uh, to ask your question, or you can find us on Facebook Live. John is calling from Kensington. John, go ahead. I was going to say that if we don't get a grips of higher education spending, our economy as a whole is going to be crippled, not just at UConn, but everywhere. We're wasting so much money. The, every building is a cathedral. They're building uh, these palaces, and they're losing sight of what it should be to educate kids. They're wasting money on these sports teams. They're, they're touting that they took in $40 million, but they spent $80 million. I have a friend that tutored a kid there, a basketball player. He, she couldn't get paid because he wouldn't initial her time card because he didn't know what his initials were. And, and we've lost our focus of what the university is about, and we're crippling these young kids with debt, and it's spilling onto the economy. And as we spend more and more money on these campuses, these kids, the next generation, will be taking all their classes online, 
It will have been a total waste. Well, thank you, John, uh, for your call. Uh, President Katsouleis, uh, John, getting at seeing uh, the high costs of uh, you know, attending uh, university. Uh, so let's talk about that. He mentioned uh, the money spent on the sports program. I understand uh, in 2018, the athletic department, again, generated $40 million in revenue, uh, but spent $81 million in expenses. Uh, so some would see uh, this uh, you know, spending money to uh, support uh, sports teams Obviously, the basketball program is different, but you know, football. Uh, you know, what's going to happen with sports teams uh, sure. and the sports program moving forward when you do see uh, those uh, that huge amount of money uh, right. uh, being spent? Right. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for your question, John. I, I hear what you're saying about the concern about high costs, and I'm very concerned about it too. Um, well, I'm just taking a couple of notes here from your questions, which kind of ran uh, through of several different topics. And I'll come back to the sports thing. You mentioned building palaces. I, I just wanted to mention as an example of um, you know a recent construction, the, the um, university recently built um, a student recreation center. I think it's the second largest uh, in the country now. And it's quite spectacular. But it's not extravagant, and if you you look at it, um, you know it's not it's not paved in marble and lined in gold, um, but it's attractive and it's supportive of whole student well-being. But more than that, it didn't cost the taxpayer anything. Um, the students voted for it, they asked for it, and they paid for it. They're paying for it uh, through student fees. They will, you know, over the next decades um, to spread it out. But um, uh, I, you know, I think it was a great decision, and um, it you know supports what we're trying to do with a life transformative education that supports that that supports uh, and nurtures and develops the whole person. Uh, so you talked about students going into debt. We're we're very focused on that too, trying to um, sharpen our message about affordability at UConn, but also to make it more affordable. And so I have a couple of major announcements coming up October 4th. There's a little ditty going on at, uh, at the Stores campus uh, that day, and uh, it'll be the inauguration. And um, we'll be framing our message about uh, the financial aid we provide to students, in particular, uh, you know, if students come from families below a certain income level, we want them to know that they can come to uh, UConn for free. And uh, the, you know, we do all we can to minimize debt. I think the average debt at uh, UConn is below the national average. and It's somewhere in the 25 to 30K range um, coming out. So students are not saddled with the kind of debts that are, that are um, comparable to a home mortgage. I think that's really important. That sets families and students back and puts them in a hole uh, that can take decades to come out of. But if uh, the debt is more on the scale of, of a car, uh, you know, the debt of a car loan, it, it, I, hopefully that's something they can recover from. We'd like to get it down to zero, but it's going to take some uh, take an awful lot of work, and we're, we're committed to that. So we're also going to be announcing a major campaign to uh, raise new scholarships to help offset the the high cost of education for students. Can you tell us more about this this idea of helping students go for free uh, at UConn and what will be the income level for students to to qualify? Yeah, well, I can't tell you that now, but uh, stay tuned. We're going to be announcing that on October 4th, uh, but it will be... Just a a few days away. (laughs) It will be... (laughs) I know, Lucy wants a scoop here. (laughs) So... um, We've got to save something for the inauguration, but uh, I, I, I hope it'll be an exciting new direction for us. It's, um, 
you know, the, the university has been get, been providing strong financial aid support um, already for a long time. But our concern is that that many families, as John, our, your listener mentioned, feel that it's too expensive for them. And I, our our fear is students, especially from first generation families who have not come to college before or are not even applying to UConn because they feel it's either not for them or too expensive. And we want to uh, send a clear message that, you know, for it, with for a certain family income with with typical assets, uh, they can come they can come tuition free. Uh, you mentioned before we uh, head to a break uh, that you know on average uh, graduates of UConn have about twenty five to thirty thousand dollars in student debt. Did I, I hear that right? right? I believe that's right. Um, and in that sense, you know, it doesn't sound uh, like a lot, but in terms of uh, the how quickly your graduates are getting connected to jobs and being able to pay uh, those yep. loans, a good paying job. I'm just wondering what what um, percentage of grad students are, are getting these these jobs to help pay bills such as yeah. student debt. Yeah, it varies by field. So, uh, you know, as I visit the engineering school and I visit uh, the nursing school, you know, each of those cases, uh, you know, the students are having are getting multiple offers. You know, at the nursing school, um, I, you know, I went to the fall um, uh, hot dog cookout. They had a little barbecue in the rain, um, as nature would have it. Uh, and I was talking to a number of the seniors there. All the seniors already have offers uh, and multiple offers. So they're in a very enviable position. And um, the same thing is true in the engineering school. Um, so it, it varies by field. Um, but it's something that we're working on. We have a strong uh, career services office. And you know that that's uh, for for many families that's the ultimate goal. And in fact, for the narrative in America, it used to be that the number one reason when uh, people went to college was to get an education. Get a good education was quote unquote the, the answer. And that's changed now across America. The number one answer is to get a good job. And um, so that's that's part of it. And um, you know we look at it um, in multiple for, through multiple lenses. Uh, Parents, I think, getting a job is very important, but they also want to see their their children uh, reach their maximum potential and thrive and uh, and have uh, you know a meaningful career and vocation over the course of their lives. Uh, legislators, you know, tend to look at it and want um, uh, you know, the public flagship to provide uh, the workforce needs of the state, and the faculty tend to look at it in terms of. Uh, human development. So it, we're, we're about all of those things, but they all kind of come together in this um, kind of education we're trying to provide that is both life transforming, but also preparing students for uh, a life of meaning and purpose and, and career engagement. Thomas Katsileas is the new president of UConn. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Find us on Facebook Live today. Just search Where We Live or tweet us at Where We Live. We'll be bra- back after a short break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My in-studio guest today, Thomas Katsuleas, the new president of UConn. You can join our conversation if you have a question, whether you're an alum or a Connecticut resident, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Diane's calling from Middletown. Diane, go ahead. Hello. Um, I absolutely want to support UConn. I was there um, just by coincidence on Saturday. 
<clears throat> I saw young people conducting families around campus, um, and I went to the art museum and had a delightful conversation with a student there. However, as a resident of uh, Connecticut, I am offended by the inability for UConn to control the cost of their athletic program. I think it has bordered on obscene when the highest paid uh, at one point employees of Connecticut were that were coaches. Um, Connecticut has a lot of needs that and one of them is the education of students. The need of Connecticut is not to have these uh, national football basketball teams. Good teams, fine, but it's obscene, it's upsetting, and we can't afford it. So I think one of his priority, one of your priorities, should bring the uh, program into line with what Connecticut can afford. All right, let's have uh, President Katsuleas address uh, your uh, comment, Diane. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Diane. Yeah, this is a concern I, I hear quite often. Uh, uh, athletics provides tremendous value to the students, to the community, uh, but it also is quite expensive and uh, it is subsidized, as uh, the previous caller pointed out. And um, I, I agree. The subsidy um, is we're on the high side compared to peers. There, there are very few athletic programs in the country that can operate on their own bottom, meaning without some subsidy from, from the university and the state. Uh, and David Benedict, the athletic director, and I have had long conversations about this, and we both agree that uh, we are on a trajectory towards, need to be on a trajectory towards closing that, that subsidy to be uh, more in line with the average of our peers rather than, uh, you know, on the high end. And um, part of that is um, the you know, the revenue uh, situation right now as we make the transition to the Big East and we develop a, a television contract and uh, there will be additional revenues long term that will will help us um, reduce that subsidy. And uh, the time frame for that is somewhere between five and 10 years for, for that uh, to occur, that payback from that transition to occur. And the reason there's a, a range there is it Interestingly enough, it really depends on how soon we win. Um, the more winning, the more tickets sold, the more uh, TV revenue there is and all of those things. So <laughs> interestingly, but it's it's somewhere on that time frame and it brings us back in line. Uh, so just to recap uh, for listeners uh, who don't follow UConn sports, so the basketball program's uh, moving back to the Big East. Uh, uh, but because of that um, exit, uh, the UConn has to pay, um, I believe, $12 million to leave the AAC, the right. conference. And uh, then what happens with the football program? Yeah, uh, right. So the, the whole university is moving back to the Big East, uh, with the exception of a couple of sports that have special uh, leagues like hockey, ice hockey and things like that. Uh, the Big East doesn't have a football uh, league, so the football team will, will go independent, uh, and that's, that's what happens there. But the other sports, swimming, track, and f field hockey, and all of those things will, will move uh, to, the, to the Big East typically. So, and have you talked with uh, the new football coach uh, Randy Etzel about um, you know uh, the, the school moving back to the Big East? Is that a good move uh, because it might be challenging for the football program to operate independently? Yeah, I think um, Randy and and really speaking more with Dave Benedict, the the athletic director, are optimistic that um, we can craft a very competitive 
independent schedule that that will enable our our student athletes to compete uh, at the highest level, uh, contend for uh, bowl game invitations, and that's what we're you know that's what we're interested in. We, we, you know, really athletics as a learning experience and as a community building experience is, is uh, positive when you're in contention. And, uh, and so our students need to be able to do that. They need to be able to, to be eligible to contend for major bowl invitations. And um, we think they will be. Um, with, you know, UConn's an attractive brand. There are a lot of other conferences that will uh, find it attractive to play and perhaps even broadcast our games on their uh, networks because we're not part of a, uh, a network when it comes to football. So um, I think we'll be an attractive invite and, uh, and, and team to put on the schedule. Just one more question on sports, uh, because uh, there's so much investment in these teams, uh, some of the programs, these athletes are performing on a professional level, but they're not getting paid beyond right. uh, the scholarships that they may receive. Uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy yep. issued a report this past spring uh, yep. saying that college basketball and football have become a multi billion dollar industry where everyone's getting rich except the students actually doing the work. Um, he believes that college athletes should be paid. Where do you stand on that? You know, Chris and I had a wonderful meeting uh, in um, uh, Washington just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I noted that I'd read his article in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And we, we said, yeah, we'd like to get back to that. But there were so many more important topics that we spent our half hour talking about all the others instead. Uh, but um, yeah, I... I um, don't come down on the same side as as, as Senator Murphy on on uh, uh, compensating athletes. I, I do think that we that colleges should be allowed to provide the full cost of education. I think the NCAA is moving in that direction. But um, individual compensation based on trying to quantify what is the value of an individual person to what is a university and which is a, a holistic effort is as problematic in athletics as it is in academics. And I'll give you an example from academics where. Is more where it's more my comfort zone, but uh, you know we we have uh, faculty who teach the entry level service courses, and those service courses might be quite large. We might have an intro biology class that's uh, 500 students, for example. And if we compensated every faculty member based on the total revenue that they were generating, dude, we th those would be the highest paid faculty, you know, at the campus. And uh, that really goes against you know being one great university. If we start saying you know. Every, everything is a revenue center, and uh, but to be a great university, you have to, you know, have to have wonderful small classes, great large classes. You need to have, you know, uh, researchers. You need to have teachers. You need to have scholars who apply their their scholarship to societal needs. You need that whole whole broad spectrum, and the only way you can afford to do that broad spectrum is to essentially be one university where all the resources are are pooled and, and somehow um, distributed in a way that supports your values. Uh, and part of that value is the broad context. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the way universities work. It's not like the university is using this to, to um, essentially you know, li line the walls with gold um, or, or turn a profit. It's really for other uh, purposes that are of great value to society and mm -hmm. to the students at large. Uh, Diane, who just called in, uh, referenced uh, coaches' salaries, uh, Gina Ariema uh, being paid uh, more than $2 million. Should some of that money be going back to the great faculty uh, and staff at your university preparing the next generation? You know, it's, it's um, not quite as fungible as Diane and many of, uh, perhaps some of our faculty might think as well. I mean, the um, 
coaching makes, as we all have seen, makes a huge difference in uh, students' lives and in success uh, of the teams. And it is, it's a market out there. And so, uh, you know, it's not like there's a pool of money that's sitting there and I could say, I'll take this pool, pool and take it away from Coach R.E.M. and put it over here. It's actually not zero sum, you know. So essentially there would be less money overall. So it's, it actually isn't fungible in the way people think, right? The success of the sports teams has a follow-on effect on philanthropy and other things that provide support for scholarships and so on. So it's, it's not like if we cut out sports, the subsidy that we now have for sports would be there to give to academics. In fact, most of the subsidy, most of the money that we would think would be there for, for the subsidy would evaporate. So we'll move on from sports. You yep. can join our conversation with UConn President Thomas Katsalaeus. The number again, 888-720-9677. Also find us on Facebook Live today. You can add your question below the video stream. Uh, Sammy is calling from stores. Sammy, go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Uh, hi. Good morning. Uh, I'm, uh, I've been a grad student at UConn, and now I'm a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral fellow at UConn, and uh, excited about, uh, about your tenure at UConn, and I think great things await this university. Um, I just want to talk to you about uh, and ask you a couple questions about the uh, the, the postdoc union negotiations. I've been following the negotiation updates from our bargaining team, uh, and it seems to me that UConn's bargaining team is dragging their feet on on some basic uh, uh, basic uh, issues like uh, fiscal issues, which I understand are difficult. But my impression is that the, the postdoc union is actually a very small union; it's about a hundred and something. Uh, 100 plus uh, postdocs, uh, but even I think to me more confounding than that is uh, UConn's uh, bargaining team's refusal to agree to strong sexu- uh, sexual harassment uh, protection uh, um, clauses. That the kind of uh, strong clause that we have in the graduate employee contracts. Uh, I was wondering if you could just speak to that. Uh, to what extent are you keeping abreast of the bargaining negotiations, and whether you're willing to commit your bargaining team to negotiating a strong uh, sexual harassment protection? Uh, agreement with the postdoc student. And I'll take my uh, question off the air. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you uh, for your question. And um, yeah, it was was recently there was National Postdocs Week recently, and I've invited uh, all the postdocs from uh, UConn to come uh, to the president's house and stores and meet and talk and get to know them. Basically, uh, let them know and let you know that um, they're an absolutely vital part of our university. They play a critical role in supporting research, but they also are, in some sense, the future of academia. They're future faculty members, if not at UConn, at elsewhere. So they they play a role in supporting the faculty research, but also in teaching the next generation of undergraduates who are often side by side with them in the lab. So. Uh, it, they are a vital and vibrant part of of UConn, and and we celebrate them. Uh, I'm not sure the the details of the the um, collective bargain, bargaining negotiation. Uh, the only part that doesn't sound right to me is the lack of commitment to sec- to sexual harassment protection, and that's something that I can assure you personally, I care deeply about, and. Uh, would ensure that we would keep the standard as uh, at the highest possible level and have zero tolerance for um, an environment that um, it would um, put our postdocs or anyone else in our community at, at risk or exposure to that. 
Uh, we just did a show, uh, President Katsoulias, last week on uh, the number of adjunct uh, professors on U.S. campuses mm-hmm. uh, nationwide, um, also uh, non-tenured track uh, faculty um, who feel like they're getting relied upon more and more as a, a cost-cutting uh, uh, measure by different universities. We actually heard from a non, a full-time non-tenured track instructor at, U- at a UConn regional campus, and uh, she shared with us, uh, some of us are full-time, but we don't have much control over our teaching conditions, which are worsening. And she goes on to say, increasingly, UConn is hiring full-time non-tenure track instructors instead of tenure track faculty. You know, what is your response to her? How do you uh, keep that balance on campus so uh, that people who uh, devote uh, their lives to academia, who have contributions, can uh, get uh, this kind of work uh, to, con- to continue that career? Yeah, um, she's right, by the way. Um, we There has been a trend over the last uh, decade, basically, to hire non-tenure track over tenure track faculty. And it's been in large part due to, um, you know, funding cuts and a a way of keeping the classrooms open without um, uh, uh, going over budget. So uh, this is a trend we need to bring back. It's a pendulum swing that needs to be brought back in balance. In fact, to be a great university, there's no one single uh, answer to how you go about that. You need, um, you, you know, it, it does take a village. It, you need solitary geniuses. You need rainmakers. You need specialists who are, are teachers. You need faculty who are research scholars who share that passion with their students. You need the whole, the whole spectrum. We've gotten a little out of balance. Um, we were looking at the numbers recently, and um, we are down from a high of 4.9 tenure-track faculty per 100 students to 4.1 tenure-track faculty per student. So this concerns me greatly. This is the lowest number we've ever been at. I think it's roughly equal to once before in history have we been that low, 4.1. So uh, I've been talking to the provost and the deans about turning this around and reprioritizing tenure-track hires in the next hiring cycle. And so there's, there's going to be a preference. Uh, there's no... Simple formula, but ballparkish. A, a typical balance might be one third, two thirds, two thirds tenure track, one third non tenure track, and and that, you know, is that sort of village approach. We need all kinds of excellence, and we need to ensure that our non tenure track faculty have uh, professional career paths that ensure their professional growth and recognition, and they're rewarded and promoted uh, for their skills in the classroom uh, differently than, than we reward and promote our faculty who are on tenure track, which includes skills in the classroom, but also uh, the research aspect of, of their work. So um, both are very important. I want to take a, a quick uh, email uh, question for you. Jason from Tolland writes, why does UConn not accept college-level examination programs like all state schools do and not count in-state transfer classes as in-residence? He says he'd be able to get a Bachelor of General Studies from UConn if that were the case. I'm not sure I understand this question, to be honest. Could, could you say again what uh, it is he, we're not he counting? He wrote uh, why UConn does not accept CLEP or college-level examination program like all the other mm-hmm. state schools and not count in-state transfer classes as in-residence. Um, okay. Well, I'm not sure if this is, you know, this is the issue of uh, taking AP credits, which we certainly do. So if a student takes uh, advanced placement classes in high school, they do get full credit for them at UConn. If it, um, if it is about getting uh, competency credit, I mean, this is, this, this is 
an ongoing debate in higher education about um, should should people be rewarded for their experience or for their competence rather than uh, for the classes they've taken. And and my view on this is that what we're what we're trying to do is bring value at at UConn to a student. Um, uh, we are we are trying to um, help them connect uh, what they learn in the classroom to authentic experiences uh, in the world with an emotionally supportive mentor, and I believe that the value is in that making that connection. So, if if a student comes in and just has has done the curricular part but they don't participate at UConn in the connection part, then they're, they're not getting the full benefit of a UConn education. And I, I suspect that's where the restriction's coming from in this case. It's re- the faculty recognizing the value of uh, that residency experience at UConn and the importance of that and not just giving credit for prior experiences that don't connect what's happening at UConn to the outside world, which is what we're trying to do. We need to take a quick break. Uh, Thomas Katsoulay is in studio with me here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll continue to take your questions right after uh, this short break, and you can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook Live or tweet us at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're continuing our higher education series today as we sit down with the University of Connecticut's new president, Thomas Katsuleas. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Laura's calling from Madison. Laura, you're on Where We Live. Uh, yes, hello. I was just uh, referring to the dollar amount that was referred to for the student loan, um, the student debt. And I wondered if uh, that is just the student Stafford loan number, um, or if they are including parent debt, because I sent two kids to UConn where I went, um, and I'm in like 150000 in debt, um, so I don't know where that number comes from. My kids did their Stafford loans and um, continue to work 10 years later to pay them off, so I just think those numbers are not representative of the truth. Oh, thank you, Laura, for your call. Did you want to respond, uh, President Katsuleas? Yeah, I mean, that's the, a good question. And uh, the, I believe the the number that I'm quoting is really student debt. It, it's true what Laura is saying is that if um, a family has the ability to – has assets, the ability to take out uh, home loans and things like that, then then that is counted in the financial – uh, package as, as part of the family contribution. And sometimes that causes the family to take on additional debt. And uh, it's a serious challenge. We talked earlier about how uh, state funding uh, to support uh, UConn and other uh, higher education institutions, public in the state, uh, have really uh, flipped, especially uh, since uh, the recession. Uh, more student tuition dollars are paying the bills mm-hmm. uh, than uh, you know, taxpayer uh, uh, resources. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what is your plan moving forward? Is it you know, relying more on philanthropy, other ways to generate a revenue so that you're not going to have to continue to raise tuition which has happened in the past few years? Yep, that's a great question. Uh, part of what we've been working on with the leadership team at, at UConn is a way to really control the growth of tuition. And the first step in that is uh, to recognize the support that the state has provided. Although it's not as as high as it's been in years past, we're very grateful that this last year, 
with the leadership of the governor and the support of the legislature, the state held um, the the um, university whole and did not cut, even in a difficult fiscal climate, did not cut the university this past year. And uh, we feel that it's uh, uh, our obligation to uh, do all we can in return uh, to support that social contract between the state and the university, between the public and the university, and keep tuition increases as low as we possibly can. So we're we're working on that with that philosophy in mind that the state supported us and we should do all we can uh, to hold the line on tuition as much as we can. And we'll be making uh, – we'll be having some conversations about that with the Board of Trustees in our next uh, trustee meeting. But this is – internally, this is the conversation we're having. Uh, when uh, we think about uh, the amount of students who can afford uh, paying for an education without relying on loans uh, and uh, you know parent support, I'm thinking about um, the number of international students. And is that something, an approach that uh, UConn has uh, either relied on in the past or looking to maybe accept more international students who can pay the full ride? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. We, we just for the first time took a look at the number of international students on the national landscape, and we are among the top 20 most international student populations in the country for our undergraduate students. Roughly, it's 10% um, of our students. I think that's a huge advantage for um, for the the domestic students, particularly those from, from Connecticut, is, you know, this is a global world, it's a, a flat world, and uh, they're, they're going to be, um, you know, uh, having international partners who are customers and suppliers and competitors and and so the the um uh the opportunity to to have classmates and a, and, a, and a network that brings those richer perspectives is a huge advantage and so um 10% is a good number. We're pleased that we're among the top 20 in the country. Uh, there's still overwhelmingly the, you know, the make of the student body was over 70% in-state students. So we're still uh, meeting our mission there. But I think we're at a, at, a, at a sweet spot. I think we're about where we want to be in terms of uh, the mix. I want to fit in one more call. Uh, Daniel is calling. Daniel, what's your question? Hi, uh, I'm fourth year undergrad and an MCB at UConn. Um, my question is actually more about spending in fine arts. So as time has been going on, there's more pressure for universities, especially UConn, to focus on STEM spending, and there's been a little bit of neglect for you know, the importance of fine arts. So I'm wondering how you can reconcile that and continue to balance fine arts spending in this growing climate of STEM focus. Uh, good yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Um, well, Fine art, we're really proud of the fine arts school at, um, at UConn. It's an important part of the landscape. And even more so in the future rather than, uh, you know, looking, looking ahead, you, you think about where higher education is going and where the value proposition is. You know, knowledge is becoming increasingly commoditized. Even making has, is being somewhat commoditized. Uh, but what is uh, always in demand is uh, creativity and innovation. And uh, the fine arts plays a, a tremendously important role in that in terms of cultivating uh, creativity. And that's the real value proposition in 21st century uh uh, workforce, and increasingly, we're beginning to realize the importance of that not just for fine arts students and and humanists and others, but also for engineers. And so, fortunately, we've had some wonderful donors. Uh, John and Donna Kranicki, for example, have just given five million dollars to joint programs between fine arts and engineering. 
basically leveraging what we know from education, pedagogy, and fine arts in uh, cultivating and nurturing creativity and bringing that to engineering students and also creating uh, uh, new uh, career paths for both types of students in, in entertainment technology arenas. So uh, it's, a, it's a really exciting new direction, and it's increasingly philanthropically supported. But uh, I think, Daniel, you'll see more resources rather than less coming to fine arts in the future. Uh, President Katsoulias, we just have a couple of minutes left. I know you've been holding coffee hours uh, since you came on to campus. You know, what have students been talking to you about? I understand there was a long line at, at one of these coffee hours. What are they most concerned about? or want you to change at the campus? Well, it, uh, it's been really uplifting. I like to joke about the fact that um, it's, it's great to have a job where you can get paid to go for coffee for a living. And uh, I find these really uplifting as well as a good way to keep my uh, finger on the pulse of the university and see what, what people's experiences are, what their concerns are. You know, uh, a couple of Fridays ago, I, I had my last coffee hour at, at stores. I had one, uh, I had one uh, just recently in our... Um, uh, Perlac, uh, Puerto Rican Latin American uh, uh, Latin American Cultural Center last week, and the week before that, I had one at the Hartford campus. But uh, I'll tell you what what some of them have been like. The last one I did at stores at the Benton Museum, I had a, a line of students come in, and the first student wanted to talk to me about a, a plan she had for doing open source textbooks to save her classmates hundreds of dollars a year in textbook costs, and could I help? And I was like, absolutely. And uh, the second students uh, who came in were um, co-organizers of Huskython, raising $1.3 million a year for cancer research, and could I help elevate that? And I was, of course I would love to. And the third student was the president of the uh, Student Alumni Association, seeking to increase the number of students active in the alumni association while still students. And I, I was thinking, I should be coming to you, not the other way around. But this is, this is what it was like. And uh, just one after another like that, there was a, a fourth student who came in, was an honor student in, envir in environmental science with some ideas for carbon, um, uh, carbon incentives uh, for, the, for the campus uh, to reduce our carbon footprint. And of course, this has been a big concern last week with the March for Climate Change. So these are the concerns that our students have been having. But I've, I've been noticing that uh, increasingly the students aren't asking for help for themselves. They're, they're asking for help to make a better world. And it's quite uplifting to, to be able to work with them on those things. Well, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. Uh, Thomas Katsuleas, the new president of the University of Connecticut. Thank you for coming in and answering our question as well as our listeners. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to digital producer Carlos Mejia. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.